Hello everyone, this is Christopher Brick, and welcome back for a, another round of Lively History Fair with our second featured historian of Intervals Season 2. For those who have listened along so far, you already know that for Season 2, we wanted to hear from scholars who talk, write, and think about American history in global frames of reference. And to that end, this week, you'll be hearing from A.J. Cade, a PhD candidate in history at George Washington University who argues that the American Civil War, so often conceived and reported and memorialized as a breach between the states of the Union, was in fact a transnational conflict between powerful actors inside the U.S. as well as overseas. And to explore a bit more of what that actually meant in the conduct of the war, and the lives of the people who fought it. AJ looks to the experience of African soldiers in Civil War era Louisiana. This is AJ Cade on the Sons of Chalmette, the Louisiana Native Guards and Transnational History. Hello everyone, my name is AJ Cade and I wanna thank you for listening in today. Europe has always played a predominant role in Louisiana's history prior to the American Civil War. During the war, this relationship between the two launched the state onto the international stage like never before. Their connection was most evident in one group of men, the Louisiana Native Guards. Regiments of African-American militiamen who were constituted and activated, first by the New Orleans militia and later used by the Union, were based on a tradition began by the French of arming and utilizing black men in war. And they were led by black officers who were educated in France in the ways of sophistication and leadership. However, the actions of the Native Guards, especially when the regiments were under federal control, necessitated direct involvement by the French government in the state because they believed the rights and property of French citizens were being infringed upon by African-American soldiers. The international controversy over the Native Guards forced the federal government to remove a general, create concessions with the French government, and teach the superpowers of Europe that the United States would enforce the Monroe Doctrine if tested. So, if that sounds interesting to you, then continue to listen on my lecture titled The Sons of Chalmette, How France and Louisiana Made the American Civil War a Transnational War. Before I begin, there is one quick disclaimer. The opinions and views expressed in this interview are those of Anthony J. Cade and not the opinions of the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or the federal government. I am in no way acting as a representative of the government today. Instead, I am here as an academic and representative of America's Historian LLC. Now, I'm not going to assume all of my listeners are familiar with the history of Louisiana or African Americans in the Civil War. So I will give a brief overview of the history of both before diving into the crux of my argument. This background information is essential towards understanding the transnational nature of the war from a New Orleans perspective. Louisiana was originally a French territory. First settled in the late 17th century through the Company of Indies, it was never a large colony by the French. In the early years, some settlers considered it the headquarters of death because of the number of people who died during the voyage or in Louisiana from sickness. The climate was not ideal for French settlers and the prevalence of mosquitoes ensured disease spread rapidly in the colony. Things were so bad that in 1717, prisoners sentenced to death 
could have their sentences commuted if they volunteered to go to Louisiana for three years. And shockingly, there were many who did not take the offer. With numbers still dwindling, the government began to deport troublesome people not sentenced to death in 1719. Thus, the region quickly became a place to send the dregs of French society. Similar to the British, the French attempted to enslave Native Americans early in their settlement, but they quickly transitioned to using African labor. The Company of Indies retained exclusive rights to bring in enslaved people, and their preference were West Africans from the Senegambia region. Additionally, free Africans were brought over from the same region to aid in building the colony, and many settled in the region along with the French and enslaved populations. Africans from that region will go on to have a lasting effect on African-American culture in New Orleans that is still seen today. But that is an argument for another paper. What everyone listening in today needs to keep in mind is that the French artificially created a new African society because of the specific region of West Africa they focused on. And because their culture and language was so similar, these Africans quickly formed kinship networks in Louisiana that further defined a separate black society from the French. By 1724, the colonial government enacted the Code Noir, initially written with 54 sections. It made a clear distinction between free and enslaved Africans, codified the limits of enslavement, and made it clear from the beginning that blacks were not equals to whites within a colony. However, in comparison to what the British colonies were doing further north, the rules seemed rather lax. For example, enslaved people were allowed to own and carry weapons if their masters allowed it, and there was a path towards freedom which dictated once given that enslaved people would have all the rights and privileges as any person born free. Naturally, free blacks were allowed to serve in the militia, and they openly carried weapons within the French colony. In 1763, the Louisiana Territory was given to the Spanish, and in doing so, the treatment of African Americans shifted within the colony. The Spanish used the colony a lot more than the French, and turned the port city of New Orleans into an economic powerhouse on the Mississippi River. The explosion of commerce translated into an increase in farming and the use of Africans for enslaved labor within the territory. Thus, the number of blacks increased dramatically during this time. The Spanish, in turn, increased rules to suppress and control Africans in the region through the Los Yate Partidas. Because of the number of French citizens still present, the Spanish maintained a number of provisions first enacted within the Code Noir. Thus, there were a food rights and privileges that remained, such as the use of arms among both free and enslaved blacks. The Spanish even allowed both to serve in the militia, and blacks fought for and against the Spanish in a number of engagements with Native Americans within the region. Spanish rule also brought additional laxity with certain rules which allowed free blacks and whites to intermarry and gave paths towards freedom for children of enslaved women if their father was white. However, by 1796, the Spanish colonial government began to fear the growing number of free blacks in the region, and they began to suppress their rights and movements. This phase did not last, as the territory was soon handed over to the French. However, this too did not last, and need of funds to finance the war in Europe France sold Louisiana to the United States, and once done, the country purchased an already constituted force of African-American men within the militia. Between 1803 and 1861, 
black men intermittently served in the militia because Louisiana continued to informally operate under the provisions of the Code Noir. Black men serving in the militia operated in a number of roles, and some even served as officers within the militia. One of the most notable examples of African Americans within the Louisiana militia was the Battle of New Orleans at the end of War of 1812. In late 1814, General Andrew Jackson arrived in New Orleans and he called upon a black militiaman to help defend the city against the British, stating, quote, To every noble-hearted, generous, free man of color, volunteering to serve during the present contest with Great Britain, and no longer, there will be paid the same bounty in money and lands now received by the white soldiers of the United States, vis-a-vis $124 of money and 160 acres of land, end quote. Demonstrating how common this was, the British also made calls for enslaved black men to aid their attack of the city, on the promise of freedom to any who reached their lines. After the battle, Jackson did not keep his promise to give 160 acres of land to the two companies that fought alongside him, but the British did keep their promise to free every enslaved person who reached their ships. Even non-combatants within their lines were guaranteed freedom by the British. Black men continued to serve in the militia in a number of roles after the Battle of New Orleans. But over the course of the 19th century, a number of laws were passed to limit the prevalence of their service in the state militia. Despite laws meant to relegate them in the state, African Americans maintained a place in New Orleans society up to the Civil War. Many traced their freedom and their wealth to French and Spanish control of the region. For example, Sylvester Wycliffe's great-great-grandfather was a Frenchman, and he had children with a Native American woman. When he died, he left three large plantations to his children, one of whom eventually ended up in Wycliffe's father's hands. Wycliffe's dad married a woman who was French and black, and Wycliffe, by all accounts, appeared black as any man in Louisiana. But because of his family lineage, he was both free and had a large amount of generational wealth. His family had enough money to hire French tutors to teach the children, and they even owned enslaved people to work their family plantations prior to the war. Dr. Charles Rudinez is another example of this French connection. His father was a French merchant, and he sent Rudinez to Paris to train in medicine before he returned to Louisiana. Dr. Rudinez was able to maintain a medical practice in New Orleans that saw both blacks and whites, and he was a fairly wealthy man because of his skills. By the time of the Civil War, there was a large contingent of free African Americans in Louisiana who were French educated and trained, and they owed their freedom to laws and traditions first codified in the Nicole Noir and the Siete Partitis. Thus, without Europe's influence over the region, men such as Wycliffe and Rudinez simply would not exist. Similar to the growing number of African Americans in the South, the number of French citizens in New Orleans increased over the years. There was a large cohort of French, Spanish, British, Irish, and German immigrants in the city of New Orleans who all had varying ways of interacting with black people. Many of the French citizens in the city moved to Louisiana specifically to retain ownership of enslaved labor because France outlawed slavery in their country earlier in the century. Their racism becomes quite evident in their writings. As one man who was told about a large number of enslaved people dying from yellow fever felt horrible for the owner because of the economic setback it would cause them. Even their writings regarding freemen betrayed they saw them as sophisticated, but not as equals within New Orleans society. 
This view of black people will go on to affect how the French saw the service of black men in the Union Army. When the American Civil War began in 1861, there were thousands of free and enslaved African Americans living in New Orleans, and they were, in essence, trapped in the largest city in the South, surrounded by a nation whose founding principle was the inferiority of blacks to whites. Free black men had to make a choice when faced with this new situation. Either flee Louisiana, or continue to do what they have always done for generations, e.g. whatever it took to survive in the South. In April 1861, Jordan Noble, the surviving drummer boy from the Battle of New Orleans, began to call a series of meetings in the city among black men to once again serve in the Louisiana militia. Because of their long history serving in the militia, this was not seen as strange or abnormal by any in the state. In fact, it was encouraged because the white populace loved the idea of black men willing to defend a southern city during the war. On May 2nd, Governor Thomas Moore accepted their service in the New Orleans militia and designated the units the Louisiana Native Guards colored. There are two things that I think needs to be made clear before I continue. First, the militia is not and was not part of the military. There is currently a great debate in the Civil War historiography regarding if black men served in the Confederate military, and the Louisiana Native Guards are not proof of black Confederates. The reason is quite simple. That is how the governor wanted it. When Moore was creating these Home Guard units, he specifically wrote that they were not part of the Confederacy. As such, they could not even be ordered out of the state. Their service was entirely voluntary, and that fact later caused issues for Moore. In one instance, they needed men to go to Tennessee to defend against the Union Army, but less than half of his quota volunteered for service. It took over a year before Moore modified his orders to force militiamen to serve in the military, and by that time, the Native Guards were no more. Thus, per the governor's own orders and Louisiana's laws at the time of their service, the Native Guards were never part of the military, and the black men who served were not Confederate soldiers. The second point is equally as important. Why black men chose to join a militia in New Orleans? This is something I expand on a lot more in my upcoming book. So I invite all those who are listening really interested to purchase it when it comes out. However, as a general overview, the answer is there were a lot of reasons. Nearly 1,000 men joined and they were not a monolith. Some joined because as one man described it, there was a reign of terror in New Orleans against any who had suspected unionist sentiments. There were cases of men and women being tarred and feathered, run out of town, and even lynched for supporting Lincoln and the Union. So fear was a motivating factor. Another factor was to retain what they already had. As stated, generational wealth existed among many of the free blacks in New Orleans, and the threat of losing their land, property, and families was a serious one as those reprisals were visited even upon the whites of the city. Others joined because they hoped to secure a place for themselves and their families since they lived in the city for generations. The alternative was forced deportation to somewhere like Liberia or Haiti, and that was not seen as preferable to those who made that choice. There were also some who joined in the hopes that their service would prove the loyalty of all blacks and curtail the efforts to enslave blacks in the state. These were legitimate threats in 1861 because just a year prior, the legislature was debating colonization or enslavement for all the blacks within the states. 
These are just a few of the examples that I've found while looking into these regimens, and I discuss more in greater detail in my book that I hope to have out in 2024. What all the motivating factors show is a common thread that not joining the Native Guards could easily translate into negative results for all Blacks within Louisiana. What is interesting is that their actions had the desired effect, as there were no additional laws in passed in 1861 limiting or enslaving free African Americans within the state. So with that caveat complete, let's discuss what their service in the militia looked like in 1861. The government justified their service in the militia because of the original Code Noir, which always authorized black men to serve in the militia. Now, there were numerous connections made in New Orleans press by the long history of black service in militia, and they were quite often referred to as the Sons of Chalmette, a reference to the 1815 Battle of New Orleans to per further prove they belonged within the New Orleans militia. The companies in the Native Guards demonstrate the men retained much of their French heritage and connections during the war. One of the companies was named Chase Shores the Afriki, for example, and most of the men have French names as well, such as Andre Kalou, who was a formerly enslaved man who freed himself prior to the war and amassed a good deal of wealth to his name through his own efforts. From the way the orders were written, it becomes obvious that France and Europe were on the minds of many when referencing the Native Guards. Another carryover of their early militia years was that the men were able to select their own non-commissioned and even line officers. Jordan Noble was appointed a captain in the Native Guards, along with a few others. However, their senior officers and commander were all white. The regiments drilled quite often within New Orleans, and one man even thought they drilled daily at one point because of how often he saw at least one of their companies marching through the streets. This proved to be instrumental in using the Native Guards as propaganda for the South. The Southern press loved to tote out their service as proof Black men supported the Confederacy, and their service verified the belief the natural place of all Blacks was to serve under whites. However, that was the limit of their usability to Louisiana. Governor Moore and the mayor of New Orleans could never fathom of using black men for any real service. They were not even issued weapons or equipment the entirety of their service, and the men who were drilling had to supply their own weapons or use nothing at all. The closer the Native Guards got to serving in the city was in September 1861, when there were a large number of Union prisoners on their way towards the New Orleans Parish Prison. The mayor called for an entire division of the militia to guard and marshal prisoners through the streets, and the commander of the Native Guards volunteered the regiments for service. Initially, some thought it would be amusing to have black men parade Union troops through the city as the ultimate proof blacks were contented in the South. However, the city leadership questioned the logic of having blacks lord over whites. The act would prove the cornerstone of the Confederacy spurious. So the Native Guards were the only Home Guard unit excused from service that day. The only time the white poplars in New Orleans wanted to see them was if they reinforced the idea that Blacks were helpful but not dangerous to the Confederate cause. For example, Moore held a large passing review in New Orleans, a military parade that displays a full number of men in service, and the Native Guards marched along with all the other militia units. Naturally, the guards were the most visible of units as they were the only one filled with African-American men and hardly any weapons in sight. 
There was one key negative for Louisiana in making a public spectacle of the Native Guards. Other Blacks took notice. African American men, women, and children gathered to watch the Guards parade and drill. Free and enslaved people enjoyed the sight of free, wealthy Black men marching through the street alongside whites. Children made school projects about Black men standing equal to whites. Women weave silk flags and uniforms for men to use and wear. Men, who were not even drilling in the guards, still felt a sense of pride knowing they could serve if they chose to just by watching them. Naturally, it started to give some enslaved people ideas about their lot in life and if they too can achieve this level of equality with whites. Eventually, the mayor and even much of the government within Louisiana took steps to quell this fomenting desire. They ordered white militiamen to guard black churches. The city passed ordinances forbidding enslaved blacks from gathering in large groups anywhere near free ones. And when these measures proved inadequate, the Louisiana legislature did away with the native guards altogether because it was the only way to quell the idea that blacks could be equal to whites. By January 1862, the native guards were disbanded and the men no longer had to march through the city streets. However, when the Union Army made it clear they were preparing to liberate New Orleans from Confederate control, Governor Moore reconstituted the Native Guards in March because he needed the manpower and the hopes to defend the city. Because New Orleans surrendered in late April without putting up any fight or defense, the Native Guards were not used in any capacity during the Battle of New Orleans. As military authorities fled the city, the Native Guards did not even aid in withdrawing equipment or resources for the Confederate military. And instead, the men returned home and prepared to meet with the Union commander of the Department of the Gulf, General Benjamin Butler. Soon after arriving in the city, Captains Henry Ray, Edgar Get Davis, and Charles Souvenet, along with Lieutenants Eugene Rapp and Octave Ray, asked to meet with Butler to surrender their arms and inquire about the service of the Native Guards in the Union Army. Initially, Butler turned them all down and he even wrote to the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, that he hoped the war would end before a single black man served in the military. However, the black men continued to push for the general. For example, Charles St. Manette, a former officer of the Native Guards who was well-versed in Spanish, French, and German, secured a position on Butler's staff because of his knowledge and skills. St. Manette often broached the subject of the Native Guards through direct conversation and even indirect action by showing the capability of the freemen of New Orleans. Furthermore, there were those in Butler's who command who pushed him to use black soldiers. The most notable among them was General John Phelps, who began drilling formerly enslaved men at Camp Parapet, a military encampment about 16 miles north of the city. Phelps publicly pushed Butler to enlist black troops, and their public tiff ended in Phelps resigning from the military. However, before he left, he met with a contingent from the Native Guards and endorsed their meeting with Butler again in the hopes they could convince the commanding general to do what his resignation could not. In August 1862, there were a number of factors which changed the strategic situation within the Department of the Gulf. The department's area of operations was expanded significantly without an equal increase of manpower. The Confederate military in the area was able to defeat a Union contingent in Baton Rouge and Butler feared his command was tenuous by that fall. Furthermore, 
politicians, and even Butler's own wife wrote to him that he would be on the wrong side of history if he did not sign with Phelps and enlist African-Americans in the army. This time around, when the Native Guards approached him for service in military, he responded quite differently, writing to Stanton once again that he intended to fix his manpower concerns through calling on their service, and he attested that after their meeting with the officers, he was sure they would be loyal to the Union Army. On August 22, 1862, General Butler published General Orders No. 63, which authorized the 1st Regiment of the Louisiana Native Guards in the Union Army. His order was very cheeky and that he quoted the governor's order nearly verbatim in his own, so he was able to argue that he did not create the units, he was simply recognizing a legally authorized unit but making it part of the military. This is one of the key distinctions between how Butler and Moore ordered the Native Guards into service. Butler made it clear from the beginning that their regiments were part of the Department of the Gulf, and thus they were military, not Home Guard units, separate from federal control. By September, the 1st Regiment was mustered into federal service, making them the first regiment of black soldiers to do so during the war. Within a few months, Butler organized three infantry regiments and one artillery battery of Native Guards and Union Army. Similar to their time under the French and Spanish, black men served as officers in the Native Guards. The 1st and 2nd Regiments were filled with African-American officers and NCOs, and one man, Francis Dumas, was promoted to major when he was assigned to the 2nd Regiment, making him the first black major to serve in the military during the war, and he was the only one to see combat. Nearly all of the officers who met with Butler volunteered to rejoin the Native Guards, along with new additions to their ranks. For example, Emil Diatij assisted Phelps in training his former slave companies at Camp Parapet, and because the men remembered him, he was quickly elected an officer in the new regiments. There was also a continued connection of naming companies after first designations. For example, the Chasors de Afriki continued, and a year later, the Native Guards regiments were even redesignated the Corps de Afriki. In addition, there was a new company called Phelps Company, in honor of the general who gave up his career to push for black men to serve in the military. President Lincoln had already declared that the only men who could join were free men, but the military did little to follow that directive. One man who witnessed enlistments commented that nobody inquires if somebody was enslaved prior to the war or not, so the bravest and boldest men were joining the Native Guards. In doing so, the Department of the Gulf enlisted hundreds of formerly enslaved men months before the Emancipation Proclamation formally granted freedom to any black man within the nation. In the fall of 1861, European citizens were confronted with a new reality of black men serving in the Union Army. As stated earlier in my lecture, the presence of black troops in Louisiana was not new. Thanks to the French and Spanish, African-American service was near constant in New Orleans for over 100 years at this point. Furthermore, newspapers in both France and England reported on the presence of the Native Guards drilling in New Orleans in 1861, and of course merchants and consuls interacted with these men on numerous occasions. Immigrants in the city would have undoubtedly seen them at the large passive review held within the state in 1861 as well. What was different in late 1862 was that the black men were no longer tertiary to the militia or a prop piece to make the government appear equitable. The Native Guards were enforcing the rule of law 
and that did not sit well with the foreign populace of the city. One Frenchman noted that under Louis Philippe, he had a Negro officer of artillery who was a correspondent of the Institute at Bourbon, and we were routed at Madagascar. It was a Negro company that saved the retreat from complete massacre, end quote. Thus, he knew from experience that black men served quite well in the military, but he also did not want them in Louisiana, preferring they be used in Texas or somewhere that was simply not New Orleans. The reason why his reaction was typical was twofold. First, the native guards were the enforcers of the law in the city, and the second was that the man who was enacting these laws. General Butler declared numerous general orders directed towards the foreign populace of the city because he recognized, quite correctly, that there were many of them who were actively supporting the rebellion. A few highlights include forcing any who immigrated to New Orleans to take the oath of allegiance to the Union, all Europeans had to surrender their arms to the military. He also took away their enslaved property and he even forbade immigrant merchants from trading with Confederates on the threat of imprisonment. There were also orders from Butler that angered everyone in the city, such as his women order that directed all women to stop disrespecting the soldiers and him using the military to imprison or hang treasonous individuals. The inclusion of black men enforcing those laws was just too much to bear for many in New Orleans. This was the same city that couldn't stomach black men parading Union troops to prison. And now, these same black men are marching the streets enforcing the rules from a general who is already hated by the foreign populace. The French consul in New Orleans, Count Mahin, petitioned to General Butler and directly to the Emperor of France regarding the new state of affairs in the city and the fact that black men were now serving in the United States military. To Butler, he questioned the logic of freeing an army of black men while taking away the arms of all the immigrants. To Mahin, this invited a future revolt against slave owners throughout Louisiana. To the emperor, Mahin made it clear that Butler's army of black men guaranteed an insurrection and begged the government to intercede before the situation reached a head. The French government, along with others in Europe, answered a call and petitioned directly to the Secretary of State, William Seward, regarding the situation in New Orleans. Their voices became a clamor, and eventually Seward was forced to send Robert E. Johnson to the city near Horps in the hopes to quell many of the orders Butler was enacting. Johnson followed his directive and reversed many of Butler's policies regarding immigrants earlier in the year, but he was never able to repeal the existence of the Native Guards. Their continued use in the military angered many in the city, and it worsened by November when a formerly enslaved man made it clear to his former master he was no longer a slave. John Andrew was enslaved by a British citizen who lived in the city to retain ownership of black labor. His former enslaver was considered an important man in the city. He was quite wealthy with family connections in the British Parliament. John Andrew cared little for his former master's wealth and status, so he freed himself and joined the Native Guards when an opportunity presented itself. He routinely walked around the city and even went to his former master's house to speak with other enslaved people regarding freedom and leaving his home. This angered his former master, who threatened Andrew with a gun. However, Andrew was now a trained soldier who was able to easily disarm and stab his former master for his attempt. Now his former master lived, and Andrew was initially arrested because outsiders only saw a black man stabbing a white one. But once the facts of the case became clear, 
Butler declared that as a free man and as a soldier in United States uniform, the only person who could order Andrew to do anything was an officer in the United States military. And since the man approached and threatened Andrew with a gun in his hand, Andrew was in a right to defend himself when he stabbed him. Now, just imagine for a second what that news must have meant for both blacks and whites in the city. The result of the inquiry undoubtedly made it clear to the immigrant populace that their greatest fears were coming to life. Even prominent European men cannot openly defy the native guards because their general would deem it legal. Consul Mahan's petitions no longer seemed like hyperbole. Now there was an example of a formerly enslaved man nearly killing his former master for attempting to order him around as he has done nearly all of John Andrew's life. Soon after the native guards proved this, when a small contingent killed a French citizen in a Lafouche parish while on patrol because he attempted to order the men around thinking he had the right simply because he was a white man. Mahin used this as further proof that no French or even European person was safe in New Orleans with Butler in command. Thus, foreign governments began to pressure the federal government to do something about Butler before he allowed a full-scale open revolt against the foreign populace. The French government in particular took great interest in both the native guards and Butler, and it was a common topic of concern with the Secretary Seward and their correspondence. One emissary even hinted France might intervene in civil war if Butler's actions continued unchecked. It seemed a baseless threat, but at the time it was made, there was no way for Seward and Lincoln to know that. Seward and Lincoln in turn made it clear to France and all of Europe that any attempts to violate the Monroe Doctrine, a policy set by President James Monroe, which dictated that any encroachment on the part of Europe into North America would necessitate a military response, would indeed result in the federal government using its army and navy to make war on any who broke that rule. There were other militaristic concerns occurring around this time as well, with Mexico, the Caribbeans, even Cuba. But New Orleans is one of the most common topics throughout the war, because of Butler and what was transpiring with the Native Guards. Eventually, the federal government acted to remove Butler. However, they were able to justify it because of some unscrupulous actions of Butler's brother versus outright stating it was to appease foreign nationals in the city. By December 1862, Butler's replacement was heading to New Orleans, and in January, General Nathaniel Banks took over command of the Department of the Gulf and New Orleans. Around this time, Count Mahin was also recalled from New Orleans by the French because they too recognized he was not the right man to represent the nation in the city now controlled by the Union Army. Mahin showed how this was true because as he left, he left one party missive regarding his view of Butler, calling him a despo with a crafty legal mind, leading the state towards republicanism. I could go on, but I have to leave you with some reason to come back for more. So I'm going to end my lecture at the end of 1862. What I've discussed today demonstrates the transnational nature of the Native Guards and New Orleans during the Civil War. It is quite obvious from the history of Louisiana and the Native Guards only existed because of French and Spanish laws from the Code Noir and the CIT's Partites. Without the traditions these laws set, Louisianans would not have been willing to allow black men to serve in the militia during the 19th century, especially during the Civil War. Once in the militia, European immigrants in the city loved the presence of the Native Guards similar to any other group of white people in the city as they reaffirmed white beliefs. However, 
Once the Union Army constituted the Native Guards in the military, they were no longer a boon to white society. Thus, foreign nationals became quite hostile to the presence of the Native Guards and the men who served. Their resentment of black soldiers reached the highest levels of multiple governments, and it eventually led to the removal of a general and a council to appease both sides. For the men who served in the Native Guards themselves, they too demonstrate the transnational nature of the city through their various existence. Many of the men, especially their officers, had some connection to France. Officers had French names, spoke French, they were educated in French, and their skills were very French in nature. Demonstrating how far this connection went, when Dr. Charles Rudinez began a newspaper for the black class of the city in 1862, he published almost exclusively in French because he expected all of the black people in the city to be able to read the language. Officers from the Native Guards regularly wrote to the L Union and interacted with the populace through this publication, all in French. However, they were in turn rejected by many French citizens in New Orleans because of the racist attitudes of the South that had overtaken this once strong connection. By the end of 1862, it was quite clear that the Sons of Salmet had made the Civil War a very transnational war, at least in Louisiana. The French and American governments were reacting to actions taken by Butler and the Native Guards within New Orleans, and the city remained on European radar throughout the remainder of the war because of the number of foreign citizens living there. If you have any questions about this process, please feel free to reach out to me. And if you are really interested in this topic, then keep an ear out for my dissertation that I hope to publish as a book. I want to thank you all for listening, and please have a great day. Thanks to AJ for sharing that lecture with us. Give me a lot to think about. As always, he will be joining Carrie Ann and I on the next episode for the Q&A portion of his appearance. Don't miss it. We'll catch you then.